Putin invaded Ukraine, the whole world is watching. There's a lot of information spewing out there. Every news outlet has a take, an ideological spin. Who do you trust? We have someone who is one degree from the inside. He is trustworthy. His take is hot. Look no further if you want some clarity, some reassurance, and some truth. We are excited to have once again the sage input of Adrian Bonnenberger on this episode of $5 Buzz. I'd just like to give a little quote from an artist uh, by the name of Prodigy, who is no longer alive. He had a song called Survival of the Fittest, and he said, there's a war going on outside no man is safe from. You could run, but you can't hide forever from these streets that we done took. You're walking with your head down, scared to look. Now, uh, Prodigy did not live to see uh, the current issues that are going on in the world on the other side of the world from where we are in the United States. But I would also like to do a brief reading from an article that uh, was published in 1998, uh, which was written by Thomas Friedman, who some listeners are probably familiar with. Uh, He was interviewing a gentleman named George F. Kennan, who was a great sage of Cold War politics and history. And some folks referred to him as the architect of America's successful containment of the Soviet Union. Uh, in the interview, he said, I th- um, when asked in 1998 uh, what Kennan thought about the expansion of NATO to include members uh, of the recently ex-communist nations of Central and Eastern Europe getting even closer to the borders of Russia, one of these nations uh, that was talked about was Ukraine. Uh, Keenan replied, I think... It is the beginning of a new Cold War. I think the Russians will gradually react quite adversely and it will be it will affect their policies. I think it is a tragic mistake. There was no reason for this whatsoever. No one was threatening anybody else. This expansion would make the founding fathers of this country turn over in their graves. Uh, With that, I would like to introduce uh, our guest who is a returning guest, uh, not only a great friend of the show, we appreciate his time, his service, but also the fact that he was able to introduce us to some of his friends and colleagues uh, that have been on the show. His name is Adrian Bonnenberger, and he uh, was a serviceman. He served as an army officer in the U.S. Army. Um, I will let him tell you exactly uh, the details of that, but I know he served um part of his time was the 10th mountain division which i think is fort drum new york uh, a place near and dear to our hearts uh, nate and uh he was a writer he um spent a lot of time in ukraine uh, with the center for civilians in conflict and uh he was also uh, a news editor for the ukraine business journal and with that i would like to turn it over to adrian bonnenberger and uh, we would love to get your thoughts and uh, feelings about what's going on in the world right now thanks for the intro uh it's good to hang out with you all again i think the last time we uh we recorded a few months ago under uh much better happier circumstances it was a really good time um just uh, lay, you know, to lay my cards on the table. I personally don't think that NATO had anything to do with this. I mean, like nothing. I think uh, I think Putin is high on his own supply. I think he's uh, very adept at using 
the way that we think about ourselves as a weapon against us, and NATO is something that's very important to us. Um, I think, I think that because uh, if he was really worried about NATO and upset about NATO, then all of his actions have only made NATO stronger. I know this because in 2013, before uh, everything that popped off in 2014, his invasion and annexation of Crimea, mm -hmm. his uh, uh, funding a separatist movement in the east of Ukraine, people like me were writing articles about why we didn't need NATO anymore. I don't know if y'all remember this, but like in 2013, it was sort of like, what the hell are we doing with this thing? You know, Russia's holding the Olympics. It's just like, it's antiquated. We took our last tanks out of Europe in 2012. So I've been in that headspace. I've been in the like, you know, NATO, we don't need it. It's, it's nothing good headspace. And um, uh, sorry, I just had to close something out. I was getting all these dings in the background. Um, yeah, I, I, think for, uh, I think for Putin, there, I mean, the USSR does have something to do with it. I think for Putin, he's a guy who came up in a country that had, uh, you know, we have our thoughts about the USSR. I grew up, you know, not liking it um, and sort of conditioned not to like it. I understood it was sort of a totalitarian regime. What they did in that country was not good. Probably as many, if not more crimes than the Nazis, they had more time to do crimes. So they did more of them. Um, and, um, but, but a lot of people grew up there and had essentially satisfying lives. You know, not so satisfying that when they were given an opportunity to jump ship to, to a more Western model, they didn't take it like that. You know, that was 1989 to 1991. We were all alive for that. We all remember, I mean, an empire like the USSR doesn't fall apart with barely a shot fired unless everybody wants off the boat, you know, like everybody. Um, and so there's a lot of uh, bad feelings about how Russia was treated specifically by the United States afterwards. I think the whole NATO thing gets wrapped into that because NATO and the United States are conflated in Russia's, in Russia's mind. They didn't understand that NATO isn't very popular in America. They didn't understand that NATO to us is sort of this weird thing that we got involved in like 80 years ago or, or 70 years ago. And, and, and there aren't that many people here that are super into NATO. But I'll tell you who is. The Poles, the Baltic states, now Sweden and Finland are trying to join. And the Ukrainians, as of 2014, one other quick point I want to make about NATO is that circa 2013, there's something like 15% of Ukrainians were like open, like to joining NATO. Like that was an idea they had. Everybody else didn't want it. Nobody wanted it. And that number jumps up to 50% as of 2014, again, when Russia invades, not something like 70%, probably more like 90%. Um, but that's, again, if Russia's actual goal if their strategic goal this is we're not talking about chess here we're talking about check, checkers you know this isn't five-dimensional chess this is two-dimensional checkers yeah. if their goal is you know to make nato weak all they do is sort of like hang out and be like yeah this doesn't bother us ukraine has a democratic government whatever they'll be back nato's gone by now you know 2016 2017 trump takes the presidency what happens first thing that happens nato's gone people like me would have supported that if, if Ukraine had not been invaded by Russia in 2014, we wouldn't see a point. We'd be like, man, the guy's got a point about this. Um, so what's happening now, everything that's happened since 2014, including the invasion that's happening right now, is just sort of like confirmed to Europeans that NATO is important, whether or not we're a part of it. Um, but the last, actually the last point I wanna make about NATO is that nobody's offering it 
It's not even on the table. America hasn't told Ukraine, yeah, you're going to be in NATO. And no NATO country has said, we're thinking about letting Ukraine in to NATO. That might be a good idea. Like some think tankers have said that. No government official is talking about this. In Ukraine, it's this kind of aspiration, not surprisingly, again, because of what's happened to them. But it's not something that's even being discussed. Uh, I think a far more, for me, the, the reason Putin went into Ukraine is a piece he wrote uh, last year and a speech that he gave. Um, uh, I, time is kind of like flowing together for me because I've had so little sleep since the invasion kicked off. My family's in Kyiv, uh, my, my wife's parents and, and, and their family. So, you know, her, her brother and sister-in-law picked up AK-47s and grenades from a, a truck like earlier today, you know, like they're just like at, getting calls at all hours of the night. So I apologize if I'm a little bit discombobulated here. Um, uh, man, what was my point? Sorry, guys. I'm like, I'm going to be doing this throughout the show. That's okay. Putin's speech that uh, yeah, you're talking gave. about a speech. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, so Putin's speech, and I encourage anybody to, to read what he wrote because the speech is very similar to that. Um, and what he says is, it was a mistake to let Ukraine and the Baltic states out of the USSR. That's Russian territory. Should never have gone. Ukraine is not a real state. It was invented. Put, uh, Vladimir Lenin constructed it, like created it in 1917. That and was in negotiations with Germany, uh, uh, part of Germany at the time, wasn't it? Well, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk of 1917 cedes this territory. I think you're right. I think that's what he's talking about, which is, you're, you know, I, it wasn't until just now that it occurred to me because I keep thinking like, USSR didn't subjugate Ukraine, the territories of Ukraine until 1919, 1920. Because Russia was sort of crusading at that point in time, uh, weren't they? Was it the Great War? I don't think it was quite World War One, but it was called the Great War. And, you know, Russia has been crusading uh, throughout the last dec uh, century. I think they, in the late 30s, they had a conflict with Finland and later on with Japan. So, um, it, and of course, Afghanistan in the 70s, right? And none of this stuff has really turned out uh, well for them. No, it hasn't. And it's a shame. I mean, I, I, I'd like to say also that the Russians are like, you know, they've got a great culture. Uh, their literature, their literary history is one of the best in the world. Like Russian authors. The music. The music is, is, is yeah, both the classical music and the contemporary. My favorite so author is Russian. So what are you going to, what are you going to do? It's Dostoevsky, of course. <laughs> Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, like two yes, titans. Exactly. So this is, to me, this isn't about like Russian culture or the Russian people, it has nothing to do with that. It's that like, you've got a dude who's got a massive chip on his shoulder and where we do bear some responsibility is not in expanding NATO. I honestly think that's just bullshit. I think it's hokum. We did kind of fuck Russia over in the 1990s. We took advantage. The USSR fell apart. And everybody prospered except Russia didn't. And I think that is a place where there is some legitimate Russian grievance there. Um, it still doesn't excuse invading a peaceful nation like he did. Um, and Ukraine is essentially a peaceful nation. There's no, uh, Adrian, like there's no like MAGA movement in the former Soviet Union where like there's this big, huge uh, faction of the country that wants to return to like Soviet style Russia is what you're saying. Like this is just one man just a KGB thug who wants to rectify a, a wrong in his, in, in 
wrong i guess gorbachev would be like an obama figure to him <laughs> right like that's a great analogy yeah i think a lot of a lot of russians would say that um even sort of centrist russians view gorbachev as the great betrayer as somebody who kind of gave away their legacy as a turncoat he was an idealist you know he really believed that you know the west was going to embrace the ussr there's going to be this kind of like hey we can all put away our guns now so they dropped their guns and we didn't drop our guns um as for the maga movement i think it's 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 tough to map what's going on in this country now with what's going on in russia i think the people that are part of the maga movement in the united states um their analogy in russia is i don't think the the maga people are necessarily um they have different motivations because the united states is actually quite strong yeah. and russia everybody knows it's got nukes that means it's not weak but it's not strong like it once was and so there are a lot of people who who have no kind of vision for what they want russia to be save like it was before bigger and like more respected yeah and uh, i think the maga movement in the united states you know americans are are, are very individualistic and one thing that's different about Americans and Russians is that Russians are far more communalistic, um, especially folks who are our age, because that's how they were raised. They're raised under communism and they think in, you know, in terms of what does the leader say? What does the leader want us to do? Yeah. Um, and I think Americans like the MAGA movement is very much, you know, inspired by individuals who feel that some type of trust has been broken with the government, uh, either a local government or a state government or a national government. Um, I don't, I'm not a MAGA person myself. I'm not a part of that movement, um, but giving as much credit as I possibly can to them. I think that's where it comes from. I think it's a sense of like, you know, there's corruption in the United States. There is, and they feel aggrieved about that. Those are very different from the type of people who are following Putin. Putin's people are Russian nationalists that are, it's, it's not like you take off your MAGA hat and you put on like a USSR hat in, in Russia. It's, they're very different. I'm not sure what the analogy is in the United States, to be honest. So like you spoke, I mean, it kind of begs the question, like we're treating this with sanctions. Like you, you talked about people our age, like these are people that aren't strangers to bread lines in, in communist Russia. I mean, how do you, in the not too distant past, I mean, you're not going to starve these people. Like, like how, how do sanctions work in, in combating right. this? And what would work? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I happen to have, I think, a pretty clear and I believe uh, intelligent solution to, uh, to the current problem. It's a long-term solution. There's no quick, easy solution. The quick, easy solution that you'll hear people talking about is a no-fly zone, which is like a, a loud sneeze away from World War III. Can't do it. You know, nobody can justify doing that. So Ukrainians are saying they're getting pounded by missiles and bombers, and I, I've like shed tears for them, I don't know, two or three times in the last couple of days, like fucking tears. I haven't wept in years. And I see what's going on, the, the brave resistance these people are putting up. Yeah. And did you guys see that the uh, that unit of 13, the squad of, of dudes on an island, a warship told them to put stand down. They told them, they said, go jump on a dick, go fuck yourself. You know? <laughs> they all got wiped out, but that's fucking, you know, I'm surprised the balls on those guys didn't fucking sink that island into the ground. You know, how was that island even sta standing up in the sea? Um, that's a digression. Um, you know, I think I agree with you. I don't think sanctions aren't going to work in the near term. 
I'm not even sure they're going to have that much of an effect in the long term in a way that doesn't also hurt us. Real sanctions, the sanctions that would hurt Russia. It would also hurt us. Boeing gets, you know, 20, 30% of their titanium from Russian mines. Uh, we get a ton of like neon uh, from Ukraine. We get a ton of uh, palladium from Russia, which we need for computer chips. It's just, we're really interconnected. But something that will help that is already helping greatly is nothing is, few things are as, um, as good for the spirit if you're on the defense as shooting down a helicopter, as watching that thing spin out of the air. And that's not just a helicopter that you're bringing down. It's also a crew, a trained crew. It takes two or three years to train a good helicopter crew. So every time you're knocking out one of those from the sky, you're also making every other helicopter crew you know, have to fly more because there's few, fewer people on rest and refit and they're worse at their jobs. Um, Russia also has something like 550, 560 helicopters in their entire fleet. I've already lost 10 of them. So if you were to bring, say, I don't know, uh, 2,000, uh, 2,500 Stinger missiles into Ukraine, put them in the major cities, uh, and just sort of hang out there, wait for the helicopters to come in, the helicopters will come in, you just shoot them down. Every time you see a helicopter, yeah. sting them, sting them like a wasp. And then the javelins. Uh, they're, uh, another thing that is very demoralizing for the enemy, for an enemy, uh, and moralizing for the opposition is watching the turret pop off of a tank. Um, tanks, the, the sort of learning curve on a tank is different from a le the learning curve in a helicopter, uh, but there is a learning curve and train tank crew, the difference between a trained tank crew and a group of dudes who just jumped in there and, you know, piled around for a couple days. And now they've been in the tank for a few days or a few weeks is massive, uh, especially with, uh, with Russian tanks, American tanks are a little bit more forgiving because a lot of it is automated Russian tanks don't have a lot of that automation. So it really requires crew skill to operate them correctly. Now you got two to 3,000 Russian tanks coming into Ukraine. So how many javelins do you need there? I don't know, as many as you can send. They shouldn't just be targeting uh, tanks. I've heard reasonable, um, I've heard a lot of, uh, uh, of intel that the, a lot of the greener troops, uh, mechanized troops, don't like to dismount from their APCs. This is one of the reasons the Russians have been taking pretty heavy casualties with, with javelins, because uh, the, the sort of the effective counter for a javelin is dismounts. You know, infantry sweep out in front of the tanks, but the infantry doesn't want to leave the APCs because they're afraid of getting shot. So you've got these green, you know, uh, Russian infantry who do not want to leave the APCs. Well, pop them too. One APC is one APC gone and eight to 10 Russian soldiers plus an APC crew, which is the, le the, the easiest to train out of anyone. Um, so my personal suggestion, I'm already writing letters to, I wrote letters to my senators. I wrote letter to, a letter to my congressman is keep the Ukrainian military supplied with javelins, stingers, and ammo. Let them fight. They want to fight. I don't think we should send troops into Ukraine. I don't think we should send our air force. I don't think it's needed. Actually, I think the Ukrainians can handle this themselves. We just need to give them the ammo and the weapons to do it. Fuck yeah. That's, I read a letter myself, man. That's I just want to point out that we're recording this at um, 4 o'clock Pacific time uh, or 3.30 Pacific time, 6.30 Eastern time in the United States on Friday, February 25th. By the time this airs, probably two, which will be Tuesday, what do you expect over within the next several days to happen? Do you have a concept of how this is going to go within the next few days by the time we air? 
it's really difficult to say um, in part because so much has been unexpected about this. You don't attack in winter traditionally because the weather's pretty unpredictable. Um, Eastern European and Russian meteorology is actually not as sophisticated as American meteorology. And uh, I don't know if you saw the photos of the Russian, the dead Russian soldiers outside of APCs covered in snow. Man, Kharkiv just got, you know, if, if you're outside of a city in an APC with no, you know, with no heat, now you're sick, you're cold, your water's frozen. You know how it's such a huge hassle. I was on an operation once um, in the wintertime and all of our water froze. You spend half of your time trying to heat the water up so you can drink it. By the time you heat it up enough sufficiently to drink the water, you're thirsty already. You know, it's just like all of these weird logistical nightmares that you run into in the cold um, that the Russian invasion is now running into. Um, and the, the Ukrainians are in fortified positions, so they're experiencing it much less. Um, you know, it's why you wouldn't attack in the spring, in the winter, you'd wait until the spring or the autumn uh, or, or the summer, ideally like late spring, early summer. That's a um, lesson the Nazis learned the hard way when they went into Russia. They'll, they'll froze out. Sure is. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so, how the majority of the Russians died during World War II. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, and so, so, you know, what's going to happen in the next, I mean, another couple things that have been pretty unpredictable and extraordinary um, were the, uh, the attempted, um, uh, the special opera, I'm sorry, the, uh, the, the attempted airfield seizure of Gomestal airport a couple of days ago with 200 paratroopers. I mean, I think a lot of these, it, it got, you know, it took a, a, a day of fighting back and forth. These are Russia's best trained soldiers, by the way, Spetsnaz and Vedeve, they're airborne. These are their best troops. And they sent them in there with little support. Uh, the Ukrainians shot down a few, uh, a, a few aircraft, a few helicopters and wiped out this force and took like a few dudes prisoner. And everybody, you know, like a, a, maybe a dozen guys ran off, like waste, wasting your good soldiers on nothing, an airfield seizure for like an air bridge. It's like something, it, it's, like, it's like watching a video game or something or a training exercise. As of right now, I haven't checked Twitter recently, but as far as, as, far as I can tell, I'm not, I haven't seen it, nobody's texting me. Uh, the people that I know in Ukraine were, as, as of yesterday, they were expecting an airborne assault. It seems that an airborne assault is underway in Kyiv as we speak. Probably something like, and this is, I, I, I have no confirmation for this, save that one transport was shot down with over 100 paratroopers in it. That's confirmed. So, and I've been here, there, there have been reports of gunfire all over Kyiv. That sounds like an airborne operation. Doing a night drop into a city is like beyond Operation Market Garden stupidity. Like the last time there was a, an airdrop in training in a city, was in the 1970s, the Spanish carried it out. They had 50% casualties without anybody shooting at them. Broken legs, twisted ankles, uh, concussions, night drop deaths, night drop into a city. You don't drop into a city, period. There, there are very few places in Kyiv that are places you'd even want to drop into, like from an airborne perspective, and they have no tactical significance. They're all out in the boonies. They're out by the embassies, like a two hour walk from the headquarters, uh, from, from the government, from the hill. Everywhere else has buildings or trees. Um, so you drop 2000 of, again, your best trained troops, ideally the guys that you wanna be clearing buildings, I think because they want to cause chaos or decapitate the government, get lucky, you know, catch uh, Zelensky out and kill him, 
I think is probably the idea, but like in their heads, in, in, in actual terms, like tactically, that is like being a, a 250 hitter uh, with three with two outs in the bottom of the ninth and the base is loaded, uh, the base is loaded being the Russian military and swinging at an O2 pitch with your eyes closed. That's what that is. You're just fucking burning 2000 of your best troops on almost nothing uh, and giving the Ukrainians another much needed, you know, tactical win. The more the Ukrainians stack up tactical victories, the easier it's going to get for European countries to support them indirectly and maybe directly with soldiers, not not European soldiers boots on the ground, but militias uh, comprised largely of Polish speaking volunteers that type of thing. And I think, you know, if, if, if Russia keeps taking losses like this, and they're quite likely to take a loss tonight, it, if this airborne operation is what they've done, um, uh, in which case, you know, um, and I'm sorry, to answer your question, what is it like, you know, what is likely for the next few days? I think you're gonna see increasing attempts by Russia to subjugate Kyiv. Um, but eventually, and they're, they're going to fire more missiles, they'll bomb them, they'll escalate the violence until they're just murdering as many people as they can in Kyiv. Um, the idea to be to bring Kyiv and Ukraine to Ukraine's knees um, and hopefully kill Zelensky in the process. The problem with this as a strategy, I think we will see that in the next few days. The problem with this as a strategy is that firstly, um, Killing, you know, destroying Kyiv, turning it into a, city, a smoking city is going to further outrage the world mm -hmm. because it's a war crime on par with Dresden, the firebombing of Dresden, um, or uh, I don't know, pick a war crime from World War II. It's as bad as that. But also, then you haven't taken the city, you've destroyed it. There's just nothing left over. It's just like rubble. That's the first problem with it. The second problem is Kyiv was built, rebuilt by the Soviets in the 1960s. And their experience of taking Kyiv from the Germans was so costly. They lost 120,000 soldiers inside like a week. It was so costly to the Red Army. The Red Army stopped to reconstitute in 1943. Like they were chasing a broken and demoralized German army that had just gotten wrecked in Kursk and got wrecked in Stalingrad before that. The Germans lost 16,000 in a, a, a you know, street to street desperate defense of Kyiv and the Russians lost so much, the Germans were able to mount their last tactical counterattack of the war, stopping the Red Army. So what they did was they said, we are never losing the city again. They built the deepest metro in the world. It's over 100 meters underground and can withstand, is rated to withstand a tactical nuclear device and uh, fortifications underground as well and tunnels beneath the government buildings that are, again, rated to withstand the heaviest bombing that the United States can bring. And that's about as heavy as what Russia can bring. So after they're done destroying the city, there's still gonna be thousands of Ukrainian troops under in those tunnels waiting to come out and fight in the rubble. Sniper holes all over that rubble. Rubble's like great for light infantry. So again, what is gonna happen? You're gonna send the tanks in, you're gonna send armored personnel carriers at some point. The troops are going to have to get out. They're going to have to refuel the tanks or they're going to have to get out of the armored personnel carriers to do something, raise a flag, I don't know. And then they're going to get capped in the head. They're going to get canoed by Russian 
uh, by, by Ukrainian partisans or Ukrainian soldiers. So I just think it's kind of like a lose-lose for Putin, uh, but we will probably be seeing escalating um, fighting as, as Russia continues to fail to take Kyiv. Right. Can you, can you speak to the, the civilian um, position right now in, in, in Kyiv? Like I, I see Zelensky in the, in, in the uh, bunker last night, given his, I'm staying here, I'm not leaving my people. You see these Chechen soldiers in the forest. These guys look like fucking animals, man. They're like feeding them, I don't know, elk meat and raw Czech hookers, man. These guys are, it's a hunt squad looking for them, and they've got martial law now, and they're telling the people of Kyiv to bunker down and make fucking Molotov cocktails. I'm thinking of the the, the, the colonists getting in the British and taking up arms and pitchforks against the guns, but it's like a completely different, I mean, you're throwing gasoline at fucking sophisticated Russian weapons. What's it like martial law? I know, I know that it's 18 to 60. All the males are locked down. They can't leave. They're being asked to defend. What, what is, what is that like? Yeah, I can't say what that's like, but I can say what it's like being on the other side of a motivated insurgency. Um, you know, the two years I spent in Afghanistan with the 173rd Airborne and the 10th Mountain Division as an infantry leader, um, with more sophisticated spotting equipment than the Russians seem to have and better training and higher morale. You know, we had food and fuel all the time. The Russians are already like essentially out of fuel on their Southern front. They've broken through and ran out of gas. Um, you, you don't want to fight against a motivated insurgency of any number um, because they just, you can't distinguish between sort of regular civilians and, and insurgents. Um, like and Vietnam. I, <laughs> not, not yeah. Vietnam. Yeah, except like even it's it's even worse than Vietnam because these are people that they all look alike, you know. Ukraine, mo like many Russians, especially from the the you know the the the, the western part of Russia, have Ukrainian parents. Their dad's Ukrainian or their mom's Ukrainian. Many Ukrainians have Russian parents. Their dad's Russian or their mom's Russian. Like these are very very similar peoples, and um, yeah, I mean I I don't know what it's like living under martial law. I can tell you that like the friends. I have in Ukraine uh, have mostly joined the territorial defense forces or these paramilitaries um, or the military just outright. Um, and, uh, and they're really fired up. And I'm sure there are some people who aren't, you know, happy about it. A lot of people are fleeing too. You know, if, if, if you've got a family, you know, you're trying to get your family out. That's what we're trying to do with my wife's parents right now. Try and get, get them out. They're older. They've they got no business carrying an AK-47 or doing anything except living in peace. But most Ukrainians, not, not most, like a shocking number of Ukrainians relative to like normal times are picking up weapons and getting ready to fight or help the people who are fighting and see the people who are fighting as heroes. And I'll make one other quick point, which is that like a month ago, Zelensky was largely a joke. You know, like people, he was the comedian who came, became president. A lot of people had problems with him. His approval rating was in the dump because he didn't prepare Ukraine the way he should have. He didn't, you know, he, he made the error of taking Russia at its word and sort of saying it's peace, we're peaceful people. Um, but since that time, man, he's done everything right. He's out there with the troops. He said, yeah, my neck is on the line. I, I think about like, imagine if the president of Afghanistan had been the kind of dude 
that Zelensky is, as it turns out. Like, turns out this dude's actually like an awesome war leader. He yeah, like a statesman. He had the camo tee on, and he, he like looks the part, man. He's down in the bunker, like he, he looks badass. Like, like uh... yeah. And 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 to your other point, you know, the Chechens are great soldiers. You know, the Chechens are not just great soldiers, but great like warriors. And they, they, they love wrestling there. That's like a way of life for them. The Dagestanis and the Chechens it has been for a long time. They're really, really into that stuff. And uh, a sad, you know, truth of modern war is an, an 80 year old Ukrainian with, uh, you know, with a shotgun is still going to, you know, give one of those dudes who's really fit, a, you know, face full, of sh- face full of shot if he goes in the, if he turns the wrong corner or isn't looking the right way. And I mean, most of the Ukrainians who have taken up arms are not that way. Actually, a lot of Ukrainians are, you know, our age. Some Ukrainians, they're even giving these, you know, giving out weapons to what they call gopniks in Ukraine, essentially thugs, you know, street punks who want to help, you know? So I, I heard a story, a, a really funny story about how a group of street punks actually stole a Russian armored personnel carrier a couple of days ago uh, or yesterday uh, in the outskirts of Kiev. And we're just fucking hot dogging with it. Somebody got it on uh, camera, just fucking doing donuts with it. You know, like the, somebody walked away from their APC and these lunatics jumped in and were just like, just fucking, you know, just moving with it. Like that's the Ukrainians. Uh, I can't say enough about them that, that that's good. They're just like a, a, a fun, good people. And, uh, and I think, yeah, I mean, like, if, if they were to get in, like, a one-on-one fight, if they were to roll with a Chechen, probably wouldn't turn out too well for a Ukrainian, you know, in general, odds are. But they're all fighting with AKs, you know, different story. Adrian, um, can you give a little education to uh, the average American about life in um, the Ukraine? And uh, I knew a little bit about that part of the world because I used to work for, speaking of uh, corruption, uh, crooks over at Deutsche Bank and... Uh, this was like the mid to late 2000s. And uh, I spoke to I worked on the European stock market hours. So I talked to guys in Austria and Germany, but I was really interested in particularly Estonia, because at that point, they were saying Estonia was an up and coming country with technology companies that, you know, US and Eurozone institutions wanted to invest in that part of the world. So did those Baltic uh, countries, including Ukraine, were they becoming more Western? Were they becoming more uh, similar to, you know, the Western Eurozone? And if the worst case scenario, if uh, Russia's influence continues to grow, what what will change day to day for uh, folks in Ukraine and the other neighboring countries? I can't speak too much to the neighboring countries. I've only visited them. I can speak to Ukraine. Um, the most substantial reforms that I saw instituted in Ukraine uh, starting in 2015 and you know, ongoing to this day, mostly in, most enthusiastically adopted in 2015, most enthusiastically pursued starting under Zelensky 2019, 2020 has been decentralization. And Decentralization is, is something that we all take for granted because it's like the water we're swimming in. You know, decentralization is you pay your property taxes and the roads get fixed and you got a police department, a fire department. That's property taxes. You know, every town has uh, authority over them. You know, I, I've, I'm, I'm a councilman, I'm a, a, an RTM member in my town. We got an, an, you know, an annual budget of 120 million. We bicker about, uh, you know, a few hundred thousand of that every year. 
everything else is committed in some kind of long-term project or other. But 120 million bucks that the citizens of my town, you know, ante up to have a good town. That's logical to us. The state does the same thing. In Connecticut, we get taxed every way, you know, you can look. So, as, as, as you know, George, you're, you're, you're in Stanford right now. Um, you know, so, so there's state taxes as well. And the state uses that to pay for programs. And then we got federal taxes. And for the federal government takes its cut to, to pay for stuff. In Ukraine, because it's a post-Soviet country, the way the USSR was organized was everything flowed, it was centralized. Every, everything flowed politically to and through the party and geographically to and through Moscow. And so if you were a regional government, you had to go to Moscow and a lot of what happened on a day-to-day -day level depended on personal relationships. So you travel to Moscow once a year to get your slice of whatever, you know, and, and that was dependent partly on how much, you know, the person in Moscow was being allowed to keep, again, on a certain level. It wasn't, it wasn't the same as it is in the West in the sense that um, they weren't doing that with money as much. It was more like favors and things like nice apartments and cars in the USSR. After the USSR fell apart, the individual post-Soviet states that remained within Russia's orbit, specifically Belarus and Ukraine, adopted that model. So for years, everything flowed to and through Kyiv. And the state, ver the version of the state, uh, the version of a state, a state in Ukraine is called an oblast. So oblasts have essentially governors, but they had no power or authority, very little power or authority because they didn't have any financial autonomy. Once again, they would go to Kyiv instead of Moscow to get their cut of things. And so everything flowed centrally. One of the problems with this is that because everybody knew how corrupt things were, tax avoidance became and still is a major problem in Ukraine. It's, it's people avoid their taxes every way they can because they know that half of it's going to get robbed anyway. What decentralization does is it gives oblasts the ability to raise their own money and towns and cities now for the first time can raise their own money and have some say over their funds. The reason this is important is like, is there corruption in my town that I'm aware of? Uh, I'm pretty sure there is. It's probably something to the tune of like maybe overall one or 200,000 bucks that's getting siphoned off into people's pockets because of bad deals or like they say there are no bid contracts, but actually it's their buddy, shit like that, you know, out of a budget of 120 million. That's Western corruption. Kickbacks. That's the type of, say again? Kickbacks and shit like that. Yeah, exactly. Your buddy is the dude, you know, your buddy is responsible for fixing the curbs. So he's the one who magically always gets the contract to fix the curbs. And that puts 10,000 bucks in his pocket every year. Your wife does your bookkeeping for you. <laughs> or Adrian, uh, meet me at the Bridgeport Navy Yard with a duffel bag full of cash type situation, right? That's an egregious example, actually. At the, it's at the funny that the, the mayor of, uh, Nate and I talked about this, the, the mayor of Bridgeport, I think he actually went to jail and now he's back being the mayor of uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut, but we don't have to get into that. And we'll save that for a different one. I am uh, fascinated by that town of yours, George. I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm right on the border. Uh, I mean, Adrian, I moved to Fairfield, but uh, yeah, Bridgeport is an interesting place. And, uh, you know, a lot of Revolutionary War history here, but we're talking about uh, Ukraine, of course. Yeah, so, you know, if we're talking about the impact on Ukraine, if Russia takes over and... For the record, I, I don't know what's going to happen. It's always possible that, you know, it's possible that 
and maybe even likely that Russia wins. But if Ukraine wants to hang on, they can lose Zelensky and they can lose Kyiv and they can lose Odessa and they can lose the East. They could lose the whole country. And so long as people are still fighting and killing Russians and playing pop a turret with javelin missiles and shooting helicopters out of the sky with stinger rockets, at some point the cost is going to get so high for Russia that they're going to pull out. And they, they've got the same problem that Afghanistan does. That, that we, they have the same problem in Ukraine that we had in Afghanistan. Uh, and I'll tell you what that problem is as a guy who was posted on the border of Pakistan for 15 months. There's a, there, are, there is a country or countries that are happy to harbor insurgents and give those insurgents weapons, money, funding, and succor, you know, shelter, sanctuary. And so we would watch as a hundred Taliban would come over the border with devices that the Russians don't have, but we would watch and we would see them coming over and be like, man, you know, we're going to kill these guys. It's going to be 200 the next time they come. And that's how it worked out. You know, you cannot beat an insurgency like that. You just can't, there's no way to stamp it out. And uh, Europe and the United States backing Ukraine as we wisely should by giving them ammo and the weapons that they need to to put the hurting on Russia, not because we dislike Russia, but because it's fucker Putin, um, you know, have a bit more money than Pakistan and a bit better weapons. The last time we chipped down on a side with stingers, I'm just going to say, didn't end up too well for Russia. I think they lost an empire. Um, but back to the, you know, back to the, 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 the bigger point, if Russia takes Ukraine, one of the consequences will be decentralization and the massive impact that has on reducing corruption in a country will get rolled back because in Russia, it's still the post-Soviet model of everything flows to and through Moscow. There's like two big cultural cities in Russia, St. Petersburg and Moscow. And then there's a lot of like, not too much, like there's a lot of Bridgeport circa 1980 and not a place you want to be. That's, um, so that's my take. You know, if Zelensky survives this thing, Adrian, what's his profile? I mean, this is a guy who, like, just, it's his job forever, right? Like, this is a man who came up, it, was, it wasn't it a viral video that this guy became, like, an actor, like, portraying, it was like a Mr. Smith goes to Washington kind of scene that just caught on viral, and next thing you know, he's, like, the president of Ukraine. I mean... If he survives, if Zelensky survives this somehow, and Putin, I mean, that would, it would be a miracle if Zelensky survives. Yeah. This dude has taken crazy risks. Uh, very likely that, unfortunately, he dies a martyr, inspiring the people of Ukraine with his bravery. Very um, yeah. But if this dude does survive, uh, firstly, I don't know how he walks. He's going to need a wheelbarrow to carry his balls around. <laughs> yeah, Secondly, right. probably he becomes president of Russia. Probably Russia's <laughs> like, yeah, we, you know, get, get rid of Putin. This, this guy, this is the guy we want. Yeah. He should be president of that area. That's my that's it's my take on, on Zelensky. Story. No matter how no matter how it ends, man, it's just unbelievable. Again, I mean, we we talked about it right up the top. And every pundit, every expert on Putin, every single one of them said none of them saw this coming. None of them saw this particular piece of action. The threat of it, sure. The idea of it, sure. But the actual engagement of this has just floored everybody who you know thinks they've had a bead on putin you know for these last 22 years of him being uh on the throne i mean what the fuck is he thinking <laughs> i mean i i know we talked about up front it's just it's mind-boggling yeah i totally agree i mean and i think i'm i'm really um 
I'm really empathetic uh, to the to the dudes sympathetic as well who got it wrong. Matt Taibbi, big fan of his, and he, you know, he manned up and he said, "Yeah, I got it wrong." You know, he said, "I was I was wrong about this." Other dudes too, Gary, um, damn, Brecher, the War Nerd, Mark Ames, who's who, people who are usually criticized for being anti-NATO, which I, I disagree with them about. Or, uh, or even pro-Putin or pro-Russia, um, which I would also disagree with them about. Uh, but they're like, yeah, no, what he did is illegal and it's wrong. It's, 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 it's awful. And I think from their perspective, you know, uh, and the people like them, the sincere people, this is one of those ways where you get a, you, you have a chance to see who's, who's got integrity, who's actually standing for something and who doesn't have integrity. The people of integrity are saying, yeah, I fucked up. Like I thought Putin was sane i thought he had a good argument about nato or whatever but i was wrong the dude's crazy he is crazy this is like hitler fucking crazy this is stalin crazy it is we're living in the interesting times the chinese curse talks about like these are really fucking interesting times and unfortunately you know people who people of integrity who wanted to believe this is a good dude were wrong who fucking i mean like honestly i don't know of anybody who got this right I know groups that kind of got it right, that were like, we have intel that this is going to happen. But those groups were saying 90% it was going to happen. They weren't saying 100%. The only person who would know it was going to happen, honestly, is a person I don't want to talk to. It's another psycho. It's like a Hitler or a Stalin. You know? It takes somebody who's totally unbalanced to say, yeah, he's going to fucking go for it. He's going to, fuck, he's going to ruin another country and, and possibly plunge us all into World War III. That's a possibility now because of this fucking maniac so that speaks um, to the question about china's involvement or they're looking at this and watching what's happening what and china is a superpower and they actually have money i'm just curious as to how what they're looking at from the outside in i know that um uh the government criticized putin as of yesterday but what what, what do you think they're they're eyeballing right now I, I got to redirect that question to y'all because I, I'm a big believer in, you know, talk about what you know about. And I am um, woefully under-informed about China. I know a fair bit about Ukraine and that area, a little, some about Russia uh, out of necessity. And, uh, and I used to know something about Afghanistan, but I just don't know enough about China to make, you know, to, know, to, to say anything. That just read, there's scuttlebutts about China potentially helping Russia financed some of this push. Um, I've, I've heard that, uh, <clears throat> you know, they're watching and waiting to see exactly what the you know, United States does and how involved we get, and particularly if we're going to escalate in any kind of uh, more aggressive tactics than sanctions. And, um, you know, they're on the sidelines, you know, certainly with, I don't know if it's bemusement or I don't, I, I couldn't tell you, but I just know that there has been talk on the sidelines about them watching in some in in anticipation and and some calculation so that's about all i have i don't i'm not going to pretend to be an expert any more than you are that other than just i was hoping you had the answer not me well i think anything that hurts the west is good for them so it's like one one more democracy crumbling is that's 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 going to be good for china <laughs> One thing that it, it, it seems apparent to me, because I'm really interested in the economics of it, because, you know, you know, when Russia is a big supplier of natural resources uh, to the Eurozone, 
and they have a lot of economic um, trade with China. So obviously, I would think that's why China is interested in the outcome of this. But I'm just, I can't see a way that Russia ends this looking good at all in the eyes of anyone. And let's be honest, they have these natural resources like gas, oil, and the minerals that you stated, but you got to sell it to someone. And if no one is going to buy what you have, it can't, uh, it's going to end in tears. And Adrian, I think you would probably agree with this. Um, Empires or, um, you know, um, countries that are on the decline tend to do these reckless things, not when they're on the upswing and they're in a position of power. So you have a gentleman, uh, Vladimir Putin, who's, you know, getting up in age and, you know, he's been in charge for a long time over there. I, and similar to China, I just can't imagine that, and this is just my own opinion, that the average Joe or Jane in Russia is happy with what this guy's doing. Like you said, they're living in uh, dangerous Bridgeport uh, war on drugs era Russia. I, I mean, how is this benefiting the average citizen? It, it just seems like a vanity project that's going to end in tears. And who does it really benefit? It doesn't it doesn't raise the average Russians uh, standard of living. I have to believe there's going to be soul crushing inflation, um, scarcity of just basic uh, necessities. And for, forget about, you know, going on vacation to the European Union. You, you, you're basically isolating yourself. You're taking a big step back, I would have to imagine. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, another thing that has been pointed out to me, uh, not being a Russian expert myself, but knowing a few is that Russia's population is aging. It's on the decrease. You have a disproportionate number of single child families, um, many of whom are male. Um, I mean, Americans got pretty upset uh, in Iraq losing whatever, 4,000, 5,000 soldiers in uh, however many years it was seven or eight years i mean i think you know uh, not super credible reports have russian losses at three thousand already who yeah. knows after tonight it could be five thousand i mean like that's a day and those sons you know all have mothers and the if 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 two days in russia's casualty count is anywhere near you know, 2,500, 3,000, 4,000, worst case scenario for them, 5,000, <laughs> three days in. So we're three days into the fighting. And they, I mean, that's just like, you talk about stress, I think even more than economic stress, because the economic stress is something that they've dealt with for a long time. And I think they're a pretty hardy and sufficient people, but you can put up with that stress when you're giving your farm to your only son when you've got some hope that it's going to keep going. And uh, there's a great book, which I encourage you to read by um, a Belarusian slash Ukrainian author, Svetlana Alexievich called Zinky Boys. And it's about how Afghanistan just like absolutely psychically like fucked the USSR. It had a disproportionate effect on people because of exactly that, because people lost their sons, their husbands, their lovers, they lost hope. They lost hope in the promise that the USSR was there for them and for their embitterment. And Putin has strength and he has authority, but man, like revolution's got to start somewhere and sometime. 
and everybody's got a breaking point and you reach that point with the Russian people. I mean, where, you know where the USSR started? Started in, in World War I yeah. when the police were at their, their greatest strength. And Tsar Nicholas II, you know, also seen as sort of like, a, you know, get grandpa's phone, grandpa's acting funny again, you know, he's on one of those sites, you know, we don't want to lose the, the family fortune, get, take the credit card away from him. <laughs> and eventually they just, you know, they fucking strung him up. They had him executed, you know. Um, I think, uh, you know, Russia is a place we think of ourselves as a revolutionary country. But if you push the Russian people too far, it seems to us now like Putin's got it all locked down. It can change like that. I'm not saying it's going to change tomorrow or, you know, next week or next month. I'd be shocked if that happened. That's not something you can expect. But the longer this war drags on and the more coffins get sent back home, uh, to Moscow uh, or Rostov, you know, the the higher the cost is going to be for Russia in a way that they understand too. They don't want to be they don't want to be fighting the Ukrainians. They don't want to be fighting their cousins, their brothers, their friends, you know. And they're going to uh, at, at some point they will look around and they'll be like, "This motherfucker has to go. He's got to go." Yeah, I want to go on vacation in Europe. I'm sick of my fucking family and friends dying. I heard he's doing a pretty good job of maintaining a certain amount of control over what gets talked about in the country itself of Russia, as far as the media, the television. Um, I know there was word that anonymous had knocked it down for a couple of hours here and there. And then, um, <clears throat> but I know that he's been able to manipulate to some extent his reasoning for going to war or to, for the invasion, calling it something else. He, he used a pretty, uh, milk toast euphemism to describe the invasion and uh i can't rough time i had a camera was but it's sort of like a um just an operation you know so to speak and that um and and what do you think about you know the uh you, you've seen the video right where he was wearing the exact same outfit on monday where he's talking about the possibility of peace and then the day that he goes that you know, we're going in He's wearing down to the very same tie as if it's all been pre-recorded and ready to go. He was pop, ready to pop no matter what. Um, Take two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm just, you know, how long is he able to maintain? I mean, I don't, I know you don't know the answer. I'm just really a rhetorical question for all of us, but how long is he able to maintain? I, like you said, once people recognize that their children are coming home dead, that kind of breaks down your stranglehold over the media, right? Yeah, it's it's hard it's hard to tell people that you, the Ukrainians, uh, the, the the Nazis, the 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 twelve or one hundred Nazis in the administration have been dealt with. The Ukrainians have opened us, have welcomed us with open arms. Um, they threw garlands at our tanks or whatever the way he thought they were going to. When to your point, you know, you, you got train loads full of coffins coming home, and that's the thing. I mean, people talk about the you know the information lockhold. That Russia has on things, well, we get, you know, we get propagandized all the time yeah. in the United States of America. Our government lies to us constantly about dumb yeah. shit too, the, the stuff they shouldn't even lie about. And then you go outside and you see reality, and you're like, yeah, it's not like that. You talk to your friends, and I think with Russia, you know, well, with we're Russia able to communicate with each other better, though, is what I'm saying. We have true. more, we have more resources 
to to navigate around that than they do. <laughs> but once again, like there's there's a breaking point for everything, and the Russians are a hardy and resilient people, but they love their family and you know they're family first people, much like the Ukrainians are very similar to the Ukrainians in that way. And you again, you start seeing those those coffins coming back, full or empty, or you you start not seeing letters coming back, and a a, a, a mother who has lost her child in Russia, especially in a, the mother of an only child, mm. it doesn't give a fuck. She doesn't give a fuck anymore. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what Putin's going to say to her or do to her. She's not going to shut up. And that's going to spread. And that's going to keep spreading. And it's going to go further and further out. And I don't know. I mean, it's again, I don't think it's necessarily going to, you know, result in Putin getting deposed. I'm just saying that historically, you know, I, I think few governments in history have had as much real control over their population as the czars did. They had, a, 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 especially in the early 20th century, they had the secret police. They mobilized far faster than the Germans thought they could in World War I. Russia was actually one of the first, they may have invaded Germany before Germany invaded anybody else. Either the Germans invaded Belgium and then the Russians invaded Germany, or Russians, the Russians invaded Germany and then Germany invaded Belgium, like before the Russian, the Germans were ready for it. Unfortunately for the Russians, the Germans had a couple of really good generals who rope doped them and then had some of the most historically consequential victories uh, in, in, uh, in military history over the Russians. So it didn't, that didn't end up well for them either. But they, they just lost so many people that even in a moment before phones, you know, in a largely peasant rural society, word got out mm -hmm. and they banded together and they deposed the czar. Mm -hmm. you, Adrian, you, you um, speak to the, uh, oh, go ahead, George. Um, yeah, uh, Nate, I'll kick it to you in just a second. Cause yeah. Adrian, I know I, we want to be mindful of your time. We know you're tired. And um, um, I just got a question from uh, a pretty smart person that uh, I know. And he had a question cause he knew that we were talking to you. He told me that, you know, he, his family's big into hockey. And he said, Alexander Ovechkin is talking out about this. And, you know, Ovechkin is as big as you can get uh, as an athlete uh, from Russia. And, um, you know, him not being happy is a big deal because I, I think that he actually uh, has spent some time with uh, Putin. But uh, his question was, what is the West's response if uh, Zelensky is killed? And is there any other tipping point that the West or NATO would get involved uh, from your point of view? To the first question of what happens, you know, the West eulogizes um, Zelensky. It, it's, it's a weird thing with Zelensky because he's very popular right now, but it's also a very recent popularity. Yeah. So Ukrainians have a great affection for him and I think they will see him if he is lost as a martyr. But there's not like a deep abiding love for him the way there is for, I don't know, um, I can't think of an analogy in the US, like who's a beloved popular, like, I don't know. I, I can't even think of a beloved politician in the United States. What a terrible referendum on us, right? That I can't think of like a, a politician that's been in, in, you know, like- the Prime Minister know, so, of New Zealand was loved a couple of years ago like by everybody. So there's a good analogy. Well, so, so, but this is, we're talking about like, like the death of a leader is consequential. I think when you feel that you have a personal relationship with them, that's like, that's lasting. I know you, 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 back when I wasn't married, you know, I, I, there were a couple of times I met a girl and was really into her and she was into me and it was like really intense and it lasted a couple months. 
and then it was over and I, like I had like a bad day but then the next you know it wasn't even a weekend and I was just sort of out there mixing it up again trying to you know trying to find uh the lovely wife that I eventually found um and I just feel it's it's one of those things where like you know he he wasn't that popular before and he is popular now and I think you know I would love I mean I want to see Russia lose number one number two like I would love to see Zelensky outlive Putin. I'd love to see him dance on Putin's bones. Nothing would give me greater pleasure. That man has balls of steel and he deserves it. But he's taking terrible risks. If worst comes to worst, uh, I don't know, somebody else is going to step up. You know, there, there are hundreds, thousands of heroes, leaders in Ukraine right now. All anybody has to say is, fuck you, Russia. Fuck you, worship. You know, we're not giving up. We're going to keep fighting and people will keep fighting to the bitter end. Um, so uh, again, I, I, I hope Zelensky doesn't die. I hope he hangs on um, the, the first thing. And then the second thing for NATO to get involved, I don't think there's any way that NATO gets involved. No way. I don't think it's, I, th I think that's off the table. I do think there's a way that Poland and possibly even the Baltics get involved as individual states. Uh, which wouldn't trigger necessarily a NATO Article Fifth of Article Five of of the NATO Agreement or Convention or whatever the hell it is, uh, the member state agreement whereby all states must defend each other. Because if you start an offensive operation, it's sort of like, oh, this you know it's a defensive alliance, not an offensive alliance. Uh, but I think what could happen is if if Kiev is still not taken, if there's even like half of Kiev or a quarter of Kiev holding out a month from now, and Russia has lost, I don't know, 15 or 20,000 soldiers, and they're having resupply issues all over the country, and they're just like, they're, they're, they're racking up expensive and ugly and immoral victories, and the Ukrainians keep stealing little morale-boosting victories like they have been, like the defense of the airport. I think it's possible. Like I said, you you may start to see Poland get involved. Um, you may start to see uh, Belarusian. I mean, the Belarusians are also, they're co-belligerents in this. They also invaded Ukraine. A lot of people in Belarus aren't happy about that either. So I think the longer this goes on, you know, maybe a month from now, you might see, you know, NATO countries getting more actively involved and possibly even there could, it could be at some point, you know, uh, Poland, if, if Poland feels like things are going in Ukraine's favor, uh, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that Poland could even just say fuck it and declare themselves a co-belligerent and take Kaliningrad, just fucking rub it out, you know, squeeze that zit, that's, squeeze that pimple. Used to be Konigsberg, now it's Kaliningrad, now it's Poland, you know. Uh, nobody wants the Russians as a neighbor now. You want, you know, only a fool wants the Russians as a neighbor after this. Yeah. So I think uh, I think it's very possible, and it's definitely possible you're going to start seeing Swedes and Norwegians. You already have Germans, French, and British, and Americans showing up to fight in the Ukrainian military. Hell, I've thought about going over there. I think it's a pretty good close to wrap up comment right there. <laughs> hey, Nate, I know you had something, and after that, um, Pete wants to join us so nate uh yeah real quick i just want to thank adrian he's speaking earlier to his point about uh you know our media lying to us and our government lying to us like i feel so much better about the situation because the, the picture that we're getting on the tv news is fucking bleak and it's like you got don't even fucking turn it on man dude, there's no you, reason to you listen got, to like trump is swinging from putin's nuts you got fucking biden's more you know concerned with a, a scotus i feel like this should be more of a fucking story 
Dude, it's, like they couldn't wait a couple of days for that. I mean, it, I'm it's trying just, to imagine Eisenhower head scratcher, man, <laughs> cheering on fucking Brezhnev, you know, in '68 when they went to Czechoslovakia. It's just fucking bizarre all the time we're in. But I feel a lot better about the whole situation, Adrian. So thanks for thanks for informing us, man, because you just told us a lot of shit that we're not gonna hear from fucking the talking heads on TV. So yeah, and Adrian, um, could you tell the people, and then we'll kick it to Pete and Roger. You could take us home, uh, Adrian. Um, we're going to share your Twitter details because it's been a great follow. And I know you mentioned one of uh, your other colleagues or, and friends, I believe his name was Nelson. Is that his first name? There's a gentleman that you referenced uh, in our previous episode who's over there uh, right now and he's live tweeting. Um, I, his name is escaping us. Can you uh, remind us about him? Because I, I've followed him based on your, com your comments. Yeah, so there are, I mean, there's a lot of people over in Ukraine right now, and I'll tell you who I follow. Uh, Nolan Peterson, that's a uh, friend of mine. He he writes for Coffee or Die. He's had to make compromises to stay in Ukraine, but he has always believed in this story. He's always believed that the future of democracy was going to be decided in Ukraine and possibly in Kyiv. And so when everybody else was getting a job at BuzzFeed or the New York Times or you know Politico or The Hill... He just said, fuck it, I'm going to write for like a vet bro magazine, a coffee magazine. And they gave him full reign to do what he wanted. And now he's there. His, so I follow him for the military. Uh, nobody knows the military at this point better than Nolan. He's got contacts all over the military, all over Ukraine. So he's got great intel on what's going on and where it's going on. Um, I follow um, Christopher Miller of BuzzFeed, who was in Ukraine for 12 years. He left in 2018 or 2019, came back for this. Um, I would say he's best for all around coverage. He's got great journalistic sensibilities. Uh, I've never seen him tweet out bullshit. And if he's tweeting out something where he's not sure, he'll, ca he'll caveat that pretty strongly. He'll be like, this is, you know, this is too important not to, not to mention, but uh, there's no confirmation of this. And most of the time, I don't know, he's got, you know, 95% accuracy. Um, Vladislav Davidson is a dandy and a fop. He's the heir to a Russian millionaire or billionaire, I think. He burned his Russian passport. He's this like goofy looking dude who dresses like exotically in like lots of different colors. And like, he's a really eccentric character like who's friends. Quentin, like a Quentin Crisp type. Yes, yes. Yep. He's delightful. He's, I, I love this dude. He's, I mean, I, and I mean that sincerely. He's just like, he's an individual, you know? He does things his way. He is so plugged into Ukrainian politics. Like he's got the best read on like what's happening in the government, what's happening like behind the scenes. Uh, Jack Crosby is also he's writing for rolling stone right now he's filing dispatches in kharkiv he left kramat uh, he left um avdivka arrived in kharkiv the day before hostilities started so he's covering kharkiv really well um i've known him for a long time he's uh, got a leftist perspective um on things uh is very critical of the you know certain elements of ukrainian society justifiably so um but his his war coverage has been excellent he's a great writer and uh, and I think he's he's also a trustworthy journalist, and I think that's pretty much it that I cover that I that I that's what I'm reading for coverage. Um, uh, yeah, they're all great follows. And then thank you guys for having me in for the conversation. I really appreciate it. I, I realize I talked a lot, and I've got my my head my head is 
killing me right now. We wanted you Perfect. to talk. Thank you. Hey, uh, hey, Adrian, I didn't want to, I didn't want you to take off without saying uh, hi. I mean, when this all happened the other night, you were uh, one of the first people I thought of. And uh, uh, my thoughts are, con all of our thoughts are continued to be with you and your family and everything you've got going on over there. That that's, that's first and foremost, your, your Twitter um, feed, as George mentioned, was, um, has provided me actually a lot of sanity because you don't really get it and you and you you really do deliver the straight uh the straight what what you believe is straight what i know if anybody knows what's going on it, it's you and it's paying attention with close eyes and a, and a, and a, a heavy heart uh it's you and and we really do appreciate it and uh i just wanted to say hello again too it's, it's nice to see you again and thanks again adrian for coming on thank you Raj, uh, if you want to take us out and Adrian, lastly, you know, when you get some time, if you could just shoot us maybe best practices for writing a letter to our congressman, uh, you know, what's the best course of action? Because that's I feel like that's the, the, the least we can do. Raj? Absolutely. So I just wanted to say thank you to all the people on here today. Thank you, George, for being our host. Thank you, Nate and Pete, for being on there. And thank you most of all to Mr. Adrian Bonnenberger. Thank you very much for being here and uh, giving us the straight dope. We really do, do mean it. And I want to thank you for listening to this very special edition of $5 Buzz. Uh, please make sure to like or subscribe uh, down below. And if you have any questions, comments, ideas for future guests and or topics, please email us at $5 Buzz. That's F-I-V-E-D-O-L-L-A-R-B-U-Z-Z -Z at gmail.com. And we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Thank you very much. Go Ukraine.